Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us uh, here on in our virtual world at BAFTA. It's so brilliant to still be able to connect with you all and talk about film and the creative arts in this way, in this situation that we find ourselves in. For the next hour, we are going to be in glorious company. The phenomenal Ama Asante, who is just a formidable woman who works uh, as a writer, a producer, a director, but more importantly what she does is she tells brilliant stories across all those forms and I'm very excited to be able to dive into her world and her career and her mind. Oh let's hear it for the wonderful Ama Asante. Yeah I'm gonna give you a round of applause! <laughs> Thank, I've you, got, thank you. I've got goosebumps just watching that montage of your work uh, and uh -huh. oh, it's so emotional watching it. Really fantastic. Thank um, you. Thank you. How does it feel to be reminded about all this brilliant work that you've created? In a little bit. Well, first of all, Edith, can I just say hello to everybody who is has logged in because I can see you all logging in. So many of you are saying hello. I can see you every single one of you that are posting at the moment, I can see you from all around the world and I feel so grateful and so honored to be here. So first of all, to Edith, to BAFTA and to everybody who's logged in, thank you so much. Um, to answer your question, it feels a bit scary sometimes because, you know, I think that you, you know, this is a hard business to be honest with you. It's not an impossible business, but it's a hard one. And, and so often I think you just have to get your head down and just, just keep burrowing away and just keep doing what you do. And yeah. it isn't really until moments like this that you get the opportunity to look back and go, oh, I did that, oh, I, I did that, I did that. So <laughs> it feels really lovely, but also feels really scary because, you know, I feel like I've done a lot, but I feel like I still have so much more to give. And yeah. there's still so much more that I want to do. So, yeah. And I hope you don't mind that we are going to go back a bit because you know this is a this is a masterclass and there's going to be so many people watching who who very much see you as an inspiration and and would really love kind of tips and advice in in terms of talking about your own journey and and going back and and you started as an actress you know you you studied acting and I mean that gives you an incredible insight into performance and storytelling before you even think about writing but was writing and creating the work always something that was in the back of your mind back then to be honest with you no because i i didn't i didn't have access to a lot of women who were doing that back then when i was acting and and also um i definitely wouldn't be here without that acting background i think what it what it has given me has been priceless again it doesn't mean that it's impossible to do if you haven't been an actor but i just think it, it has been an added benefit for me um, but, but I didn't know it was possible, if I'm really honest with you. Where I think I was lucky um, was that on one, one of the TV shows that I was on, for, for those in the UK, Grange Hill, um, we had an incredible um, script editor who um, was called Anthony Minghella, who became, you know, one wow. of our national treasures as a, as a filmmaker and as a writer. And, I, you know, from afar, I watched him and I watched him go from, you know, script editor to, to, to writer in theatre and then director in theatre and then, you know, writing and directing films as well. And he was really the first person that I saw um, who was doing that, who was sort of moving from one role to the next, whose who's, who's sort of journey I was sort of watching from afar. I think what, what doing a TV series like Grange Hill did, which was on twice a week, was show me the power of storytelling. Mm. You know, I'd be on twice a week, but I'd go back home to my normal community. 
and um, and it wasn't a showbiz community, it wasn't Hollywood, it was Streatham in South London. And I saw the power of the stories that we were telling in Grange Hill, you know, the, the heroine storylines, the, um, you know, all of the quite bold teenage issues that they dealt with, you know, yeah. on that show. And the power of storytelling really impacted me. And I know that it buried itself somewhere deep. So it took a while before I understood that this may be a possibility for me as a career. And then when you, when you take that step into to writing, it's always a scary prospect, isn't it? When you're taking a step into something new, but you know it's something that you, you know you can do and you want to do with a huge passion. Um, what was the encouragement that you had and what was that and, and how were you able to make that step into, you know, to writing and directing? Well, you know, you know, I think back to that time quite nostalgically and um, I, I think about some of the key people in my life that really um, just took a chance and, and, and made a difference. So I was um, out in Los Angeles um, as a young sort of 21 year old, 22 year old, I'd written what was supposed to be a half an hour comedy um, just to get my typing speed up because I, I thought I was actually going to be stepping out of the industry and in, and, and in, because I'd sort of come to know scripts so well from those few years on, on Grange Hill um, and seeing the process of yeah. going from script to screen. I, 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 to get my typing speed up, I just written, typed out a story in script form. And uh, so it was meant to be half an hour. It was one and a half hours. So it was more like a comedy feature <laughs> film. And I showed it to, to someone um, in Los Angeles that I knew, a man called Chuck Sutton, the late Chuck Sutton, um, who is no, no longer here. And um, just for some tips, really, and some thoughts. And um, instead, he sent it to Fox Television in the, in the US. And two brilliant um, women executives then called me in and said, well, you know, we'd, he gave them my, my hotel number. And, and they said, we'd love to meet you and talk to you more. And I had no, I, I'd never really been for a meeting in my life, apart from like a job interview that was sort of as a secretary or a typist. So all I had were cut down jeans and cut, cut, cut off t-shirts. And I went to the studio in, at Fox. And, and the brilliant thing was that they were so kind. They were so respectful of the work and they encouraged me. And Fox didn't take that particular project on, but I came back to the UK with a, a, a kind of confidence um, to try and see if I could get the work, any interest in the work. And I'd written in my mother's maiden name, um, or at least I sent it out in my mother's maiden name because I didn't, I didn't think I'd be taken seriously because I felt I was so young mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Nobody would take me seriously. Um, and I was sending the scripts to producers that I knew from being an, a little actor, a young actor in the industry. Uh, and one of those producers, Mick Pillsworth at Chrysalis Visual Entertainment, part of the record company, which had a TV arm, um, a bit, they said, you know, we, we'd love to meet you. And at that point I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to expose who I am. And then they won't, they won't trust. Um, but they did, they, they learned who I was and it was really me, it was really Anna. And, and that's, that script ended up being um, commissioned at Channel 4. I got a seven script deal with Channel 4. And then wow. quite separately, I got a four script deal at the BBC at that point and, and entered into development for the, for the next few years actually. And that was really the beginning of, of my career. And it, it was actually blissful in a way. Yeah. Um, because it paid me enough to keep a roof over my head and not have to go out to work and just do what I loved doing at the time, which was writing. And that, did that lead, that led to Brothers and Sisters then on BBC? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that led to Brothers and Sisters. So, that, so 
for everybody listening who's just starting out, listen, I worked for three years on both of those, um, you know, development on both of those. And then what we call new brooms came in. So new commissioning editors came in and, <laughs> um, and, and swept the shelf clean, including my project. So all, both of those projects technically led to nothing. I say spiritually, they led to everything because I wouldn't be here today without those. Um, but you know, the work got passed around. People understood that I, you know, I could do a decent job at writing, and I was commissioned to write um, uh, and co-create Brothers and Sisters, and that became the first TV amazing. show that I did for the BBC. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess when you get that kind of, you know, I always I believe that kind of things happen for a reason, you know, and and one one knockback leads to one door closing leads to another door yeah. opening. But you always take something along on that journey that lends to you growing as a person and as a creative as well. Um, 100%. And then A Way of Life, which was this phenomenal first feature that, that, that you wrote and directed. And talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the, the seed of that idea and why and, and how you found that story to, to write and making yeah. that decision to to make it yourself as well. And, you know, it was it, because I think that that is a we'll talk about it in a minute if it's a different experience when it's something you've written or if you're directing someone else's words almost in a way yes. as well yeah but, but, yeah no. um well absolutely so so i i made brothers and sisters and um on a friday when we, I, I was um producing brothers and sisters as well and um yeah. but on the friday i would run away and i would go to an english literature class an all day english literature a level class um, up in um, Kensington and Chelsea at the, at the college there and um, it was really where I first met or got to grips with Austin with Jane Austen's work and lots of other lots of other writers classic writers and I think it changed the way that I approached my work I've really started to understand this whole concept of one piece of work meaning many things to many people you know you could take the same piece of work and you know it would mean different things to each person in the class. Oldest yeah. person in my class was 80, youngest person was 26, I was 27. And so um, when I, when I, I then met um, the late Peter Edwards, who was at the time the um, head of drama at what was then HTV Wales is today ITV Wales. And um, I knew that Wales was some of the oldest black communities in Europe. It had some of the oldest black communities in Europe and that kind of fascinated me. And I was sort of thrown into his presence at a BAFTA event and, and introduced to him. And I thought, oh, God, I better say something, you know, intelligent. So I said, you know, are you doing anything to reflect that? And he sort of walked off, didn't answer me. And about six weeks later, he called and said, you know, I've been looking for you. I've been searching for your phone number. Are you the woman I spoke to at BAFTA? And I said, yes. And he said, um, will you meet me? Will you come to BAFTA and meet me? I'm coming up to London next Tuesday. And I said, yes, of course. Came up, sat down. And he said, I'm going to ring fence some money for you. And I'd like you to, to write something for, for HTV Wales. And I said, what? And he said, well, whatever you like. And apparently I'd said to him back then, you know, um, you know, because Wales has some of the oldest black communities, maybe they have something to teach the rest of the UK. Because the key thing was that they weren't slaves and they were, you know, they were these integrated communities. And he had said, no, no, not at all. And so we, we started looking at um, newspaper articles at the time yeah. that um, were looking at what seemed to be a sort of um, 
a phase, a fad of crime, I'm not really sure what to call it, which was seemed to be led by young women, very young women, teenagers often, but, mm -hmm. the, but, but the gangs themselves would be boys. And the, the, the newspapers at the time, particularly the tabloids, were sort of, you know, these big sensational headlines. Um, but I really wanted to know what, what was going on behind the headline, you know, what, what, what were the class, societal, you know, what were the issues that were around these, these uh, kind of a spate of attacks that these young girls were leading um, with boys against, um, you know, people, what, what, what might be behind that? Um, and I came across an article in The Telegraph, written by a wonderful journalist, and, um, and it really took the angle that I wanted. And so I contacted that journalist and took him out for lunch, and we sat down and we had a chat. And, um, and he became a consultant on the way of life. And, and, and from there, the concept of looking at, I think racism comes from many different places, but I really wanted to explore it just for the purposes of this um, film as a... Um, as, as, as a consequence of other things, as a symptom of other things, if, if that makes sense. And, yeah. and in this sense, it was a symptom of what happens when you isolate people, you marginalise, you know, those people who are enacting racism themselves. And it, it, and it wasn't to sort of justify it. It was to say, at what point does society's um, culpability meet yeah. personal responsibility? You know, at what point do the kids in the film actually have to take personal responsibility for their behavior? For those who don't know, the movie starts with, um, if you like, an accidental murder. It's a deliberate attack on a Turkish Cypriot neighbor. Um, and they essentially kill him by kicking him to death. And then it flips back six weeks and you see how that came to happen. And I wanted, these kids came from a world that I think, you know, you know, a town that could be anywhere in the world. It could be in America, it could yeah. be in France, it could be in the UK. But just the kind of place that, you know, you often just see as a sign on the motorway or on the highway, you never really visit unless you've got an aunt or a grandma or someone who lives there. These places that were once functioning communities um, that had had the life really pulled out of them. Employment, you know, libraries, you know, schools, industry, everything, yeah, industry, that, yeah. everything mm. ripped out. And now suddenly they're expected to somehow function and they're not anymore. And, and what is the result when you get young kids who feel like they have no place in society looking for someone to blame? And inevitably growing up, that someone was always me or people that look like me. And so that was, that was, that was really how, how it started. So lots of research. Um, and for me, if I'm, if I'm, whatever period I'm working from, I always go back a hundred years in the research. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it's a really interesting way to kind of go back and work out how you got to this place, you know, that you're in economically, socially, you know, um, in status of women, you know, uh, status of any group that is often marginalised, if you like, or just any group that isn't. It tells you so much. And so that's what I did with, with, um, with Wales. I just went back 100 years and thought, OK, well, let, let's see who these people might have been 100 years ago and, 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 and how they got to where they were today. How important is that research and, and development process with, with your, you know, with, with each project that, that you work on? Uh, is, you know, in terms of the intensity, I mean, that's an incredible, you know, insight you're giving us there with in terms of it's not just about research, it's going way back. Uh, yeah, it's going way back. And, and also for me, it's, um, 
you know, because if I haven't written something, first and foremost, if I've written something, you know, I've probably been doing all of that research way before I start writing, way before I've done my bullet points and my treatments and I've marked out some of my themes. Many of my yeah. themes develop as I'm going along. But, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of research that you're doing before. And, um, and it's a minimum for me three months. Sometimes it can be six months of research, if they'll let me. Um, but, when, but when you're jumping on something that somebody else has written, say like a, a United Kingdom, you've suddenly got to do that all in one go. And a United Kingdom was, you know, a, a, as an example, compared to um, a way of life, which, you know, completely came from, from me, was a, adapted from a book by Suzanne Williams, who's, who's a professor of history has got like a brain the size of, you know, the world. And, um, you know, that book was an incredible, incredible book, but it was so dense I could only read 18 pages a day. But even beyond the brilliant stuff that her book offered me, I still had to go back and do my own research so that I could get my own grasp of what the material was. And so it, it's really important for me, but because apart from anything else, apart from giving me knowledge, it also steeps me in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and allows me to walk for, for some time in the shoes of the characters that I'm going to be asking you to walk in the shoes of. And I think if I can't do that, I can't really ask you to. Yeah. So, so that's the important thing. And, you know, I do the work that you, you don't have to do as the audience so that you just hopefully um, reap the end product of that and you feel everything um, that I've tried to pull together and making it a three-dimensional world and three-dimensional characters, I hope. Well, for sure, because it's that thing that I think that you, you do with every project, you know, no matter kind of who the story is about, it feels like that you have dug deep to find a story that we don't know about, but we need to know about, you know, in terms I hope of the... So. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope that, you know, one of the things that when, you know, um, you and I were just talking a little bit before we started and we were talking about my TED talk. And one of the things I loved um, um, about when you do a TED or you do a TEDx talk is that, you know, they really want you to talk about we, not just you or we, yeah. not just me. And, um, and, you know, one of the things I ask you to do is to, 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 to start with a vulnerability in many ways, or at least certainly for mine, they did. And I think that, um, you know, what, I'm constantly trying to talk about a we, because despite the fact that a lot of the projects I've done are about uh, historical issues, and, um, you know, often, oftentimes they have at least one character of color at the center of them. And so oftentimes we are dealing with issues of identity, issues of injustice, even with a way of life. It's, you know, it's an, un it's an unjust society that this teenage mother, um, single mother, is growing up in. It's not fair on her in, or, or her friends in any way, shape or form. The fact that they take that out on other people is not good, but it, it's, it's, it's unjust. And I think that, you know, when you're looking at any of those, those aspects, it's really important to, to holistically say, how do we as a society deal with this? For me, when I was looking at and I know we'll move on to Belle, if, you know, at some point, but what, what um, Gugu for me in that story, Belle for me in that story, I, I, for me, black history is history. It's all about history. It's your history. It's my history. And for me, the fact that she walked those streets back in that period meant that, you know, our idea of what an English rose is is slightly warped. 
And so, so if we, if we, if we, when we come to realise that that history is about all of us, and there are so many contributions of people that we often don't get to see, then you can kind of there's a there's a really interesting way of looking at that film, which was for me, I wanted to present another kind of English rose. And so, so it, it, for me, it's always coming at it as a, as a we and not necessarily wagging the finger at everybody, but saying, look at our history, look what we've done and, and, and who do we want to be? You know, how do we take the good stuff and move forward and fix the stuff that wasn't, yeah, wasn't so I think, perfect, you know? I think you do it so brilliantly in, in, in your storytelling. I think it's just, and I was really, did you, do you know when you were starting out that you, what kind of filmmaker you wanted to be and, and that you did want to kind of, you know, the, your, your, your characters, your stories, they have purpose, they have, you know, they make you want to dive into to those worlds and learn more when, when there's a, you know, when there's a historical um, viewpoint there sort of thing. It makes you kind of want to kind of, you know, peel back even more to find out more. Did you know that you wanted, that your storytelling was going to be that type of storytelling? No, I didn't know that my storytelling would have any kind of power whatsoever, ever, other than I knew that stories in general did. I didn't know that mine would. And I didn't know that, you know, what learning about these people and these characters did for me, I would be able to pass on to other people. I mean, once that happened, you know, I was stunned with the reactions to my first film and, you know, traveling around the world and, and seeing how, how interested people then that came to the film then became in, in terms of what, you know, what modern day poverty looked like, because that's essentially what that film was about. It was about, it was about the underclass, and it was about modern day poverty. And I didn't know that. And by the time I got to Bell, I was even, you know, I was completely even more stunned, but also just really, you know, just really grateful that, that I lived in a world where my stories in a way could, could land on people. Um, and, and to some extent be a bit transformative if that made sense that that for me is what keeps me going and when a movie takes me 12 years to make or however long it might make you know knowing that eventually it will land on 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 the right audience is is what's important for me so um it, you know what i knew was that i loved there were certain there were particular filmmakers whose stories had an external beauty um to the intimate and internal beauty, um, you know, of their characters, you know, um, and even if their characters were complicated, even bad, bad people sometimes, it was a beauty that they were able to reflect between the inside and the outside. And I knew that was what I wanted to do. Anthony Mingella, you know, did that beautifully in films like yeah. The English Patient and, um, um, is it the incredible Mr. Ripley? I always forget the first. Yeah, talented but, Mr. Yeah, Ripley. Yeah, the talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And you know, um, you know, Kubrick's work and 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 just so many. Just Francis Ford Coppola. There were just so many. You know, people sometimes give me a wry smile when I say, you know, as a, as a thirteen-year-old kid, I was just completely blown away with what Barbara Streisand did with Yentl, because and the reason I didn't realise it at the time was because she was telling a story about a woman who had to pretend to be a man in order to get an education. And of course I realized that surface story, but I didn't realize that what I was really attracted to was the idea of what it is to be a woman and, yeah. and, and to, to strive to be equal. And so the beauty, the epicness of that story, the epicness of the relationship between her and her father, um, even though he dies very early on and, and, and what it means to, you know, to, 
to have your, you know, to cut the umbilical cord, even from your father and have to, to go out there and do it by yourself really impacted me as a kid. And I wanted to be able to tell stories that were as beautifully internally as they were externally. Um, yeah. That was what I knew I wanted to do. Whether anybody would care, I didn't, I didn't think so. And they do, massively. And they do. Yeah. <laughs> they do, they do, they do, which is great. But just picking up on that, on, on you know, on on Yento and, and, and being a, a female writer director of colour in the industry and back in that 2014 TED talk you talked about there's a, a ridiculous figure that you quoted 0.4% of uh, directors back in 2014 that was the figure for, for um, women directors of colour I mean have you seen a change yeah. have you felt a change has there been a change so I haven't looked up the figure recently, very, very recently, but um, my understanding is it, it hasn't really changed very much. And certainly I know the figures that, um, that are for all women um, haven't, you know, sort of seem to, depending on what study you look at, seem to, at least in the last uh, several decades, seem to bounce between 7% and 9% and haven't really gotten any better. Um, which leads me to believe that the figures for, for women of colour haven't really either and you know anybody's welcome to correct me there if, if, if I'm wrong and you know it really is I think our industry shame in so many ways we we live in a world where it it, it isn't even about what's right it's because you know show business is a business it, entertainment it is the entertainment business but it's about um, it's about money. It's about the fact that when you give audiences a variety and when you allow voices that have value and opportunity to speak, people will pay money. They will go to the movie theater. They will, um, you know, turn on, you know, Netflix or FX or Hulu or, or whatever it is and watch those stories. And, you know, I remember when I made Belle, for instance, you know, um, it was a love story and there was this idea that you know women love love stories or the people who love stories are predominantly women and they take men to go and see those and so we, we sort of had to you know target women and it would be women that brought men in and then men came to see the movie and they loved it and you know and they loved it for a number of reasons and you know the challenge and the joy for me is to say a can i can i service a community, a sense of people, you know, a group of people or, or, or a, a group of many peoples, because as women, we're not a monolith, who just don't get that many stories sort of told about them. That, that's, that I love doing. But the secondary to that is to say, well, how can I get the very opposite of my lead character to sit in the audience and walk in her shoes for two hours and come out going, I understand my world a little bit better than I did before I came into the, to the movie theatre. And I think a movie like Belle did that in, in so many ways. And, and, and there's a joy in that. There's a, there's a kind of triumph in that as well. And certainly I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm going out to win all of these hearts and minds, but, but when I do, it's, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. And I just think the industry knows better it knows look at black panther i could just i could go on and on and on it knows better and you know we really need yeah. to do better we really do um with directing specifically um can you remember what it felt like on that first day on set 
Oh yes. <laughs> that, that facial oh, yes. expression spoke so many words. Oh yes. Well, I mean, the funniest thing in the world is um, I have a little dog, I have a baby dog, and um, one of the reasons why I have a dog is because I'm terrified of dogs. So I think, you know, I do, I do remember on the, my very first day of filming, you know, the, the few days leading up to it had been absolutely terrifying. And I think it's really important to say that I'd written my first film. I did not intend to direct it. I was looking for directors, you know, alongside my producer, Peter Edwards and, and Charlie Hansen. And, um, and in the end, the film council who would stay the BFI said, no, you need to direct your film. Brilliant. And so I shot what they called pilot, just, you know, a few scenes from it. It, it, it. it was great, but it was, that was nowhere close to what I wanted to do in, you know, with the end product. And, um, and so my, the build up to that day, I mean, the build up was just horrendous. And, you know, I didn't sleep for days. I knew I needed to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. You know, I couldn't think straight, but, you know, a thousand people are asking me questions a day. And, um, and on the morning about, I, I first made my way to base, which is, um, for anybody who doesn't know, that's where, you know, all the trucks and all the trailers are kept. And, you know, from, from there, you know, you have your breakfast there in the morning and you, I prep my brain by usually listening to loads of rap music in the morning in my trailer there. And then you go to set. And as I walked over to base, the biggest, baddest dog that I've ever seen in my life, not on a lead, just kind of walked between me and you know my, where my car had stopped and base and um and I was just petrified I couldn't get across the base and then my wonderful art director Arwell Jones you probably won't even remember this um sort of must have seen me kind of frozen and he walked across and he sort of put his arm out and I linked my arm in his and he walked me across the base I remember that day Arwell became uh is a production a brilliant production designer now um, Emmy nominated, if not Emmy winning, I think, production designer. Um, but, and he worked on Where Hands Touch with me as well. So he walked me over and that really was the beginning of my very fearful day. And I remember sort of completing my first shot, I think maybe somewhere around 8.30, quarter to nine in the morning and thinking that was it. I was directing and thinking, oh my God, this is so great. This is so brilliant. And then I just remember everybody, I realized nothing was happening. Everybody was just still and everybody was just looking at me. And I thought, what, the, what are they, I nearly saw, what are they all looking at? And then I realized they're not going to move until I tell them what to do next. Like they won't move. And I remember, um, Delith Thomas, who's a, who's a, a brilliant director, who was somebody that um, my agent introduced me to in Wales. Um, just a few weeks before I made my first film, I asked her, you know, what, you know, what was I going to do? I was going to be making this movie and I had no idea to, what to do. And Della said to me, all you have to do is be one step ahead. You just have to know what you're going to do next before anybody else. And if you stay one step ahead, you will be fine. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be three steps ahead after that. I'm always <laughs> going to be three steps ahead. And in my mind, you know, I try to be, things change when you're doing TV, it's different. But mm -hmm. certainly on my films, that's something that's really important to me, to just be as prepared as I can. Because the more prepared I am, the more leeway I have to actually play around and move around a bit. When yeah. you're not prepped, I think that's when you get into such a mess that you actually don't have any leeway to, yeah. to be creative on set. How, um, 
you know, it's been what's been really wonderful in kind of preparing for today was 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 being in college to go back and watch all your films that I'd watched, you know, when they came out. But just having that that luxury of sitting and watching them and kind of chronologically it was wonderful to watch your journey as well. And you know, you mentioned where hands touch, and you know, United Kingdom was just a treat to go back and watch as well. It really, really, really was. And it's 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 I, I don't know if it's a, if you change as a director from project to project. You know, I think you, I hope if you're a good director, you're not so rigid that each project has to bend to you. I think it's really important to have a vision. But, you know, oftentimes I get the question, you know, how do you direct actors? You know, what, you know, what's the best way? And I said, well, actors are people and, you know, each actor is different. And, you know, I could be directing two actors in the same scene and, um, and they need a different approach. And I think, again, that's what, being a really bad actor previously um, showed me it didn't it didn't show me how to act but it at least showed me I think something of what 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 actors need this kind mm -hmm. of support they need and you know as an example you know you might be shooting a scene and you might be working with two actors one actor for instance might be someone who's like a real kind of almost one take wonder you know they they peak almost in the first or second take and another actor might be someone who needs lots of takes to warm up well you know, shooting the actor who needs lots of talks to uh, lots of takes to warm up first is not a good idea. Like doing their their close ups first is not a good idea. Like do the one who's like the one one hit wonder. <laughs> yeah. Let the other actor have a little bit of time to warm up and then turn your camera around. And it doesn't always work like that. But I guess my point is that you you know each movie has its own dynamic, and yeah. I like to think I create. Um, feeling on set I like to think that you know the vision and the passion that I have and, and the team that I've kicked to work with um you know helps to shape um who you are as a film director as you as you move along I'm I'm a director that has a really really strong vision for my films but I'm also a director that likes to be open and to collaborate and I do believe that there's more than one way to get to a sentiment or a goal and so I'm not all you know I think I have enough vision that keeps actors feeling safe, but I'm collaborative enough to let them just do what they do also yeah. at the same time and not get in the bleeding way of that. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, I hope, I hope I grow from working with all of the actors and the crew that I work with. And, you know, I hope in some way they grow from me as well, you know. And you mentioned earlier that it is different. Is it different for TV then when you're working? Because you, you know, working across, coming in and working on Handmaid's Tale, for example, on this kind of beast that's already there, I guess. And yeah. the, but you get to come in and put your stamp on it. What, what was that? And also, yeah. there's a lovely full circle as well with with Anthony's son being part of the cast. What a lovely. Totally. Oh totally. my god. And you know what, Anthony Miguel also was the, was the person chosen without anybody knowing it to, to give me my first award ever. So the first award I won was the Alfred Dunhill Award. This is for A Way of Life um, at the London Film Festival and who gave it to me, but Anthony Minghella. Geller. So, so that was lovely. Um, but uh, yes, it is different in the sense that, well, first and foremost, I'm really careful about the TV that, that I choose. You know, a lot of it comes my way thankfully um and uh but i've just been very very careful about what i've chosen and i've cho i've chosen to work on shows that make sense for me um and you know i remember the first time i saw handmaid's tale i thought oh this kind of looks like something i could make you know it, it feels it's beautiful like it has a an interior 
um, important, powerful story, but at the same time, um, you know, it's, it, it's aesthetically just, just stunning and, and that's what I aim for and I try. So I try not to, to attach myself to TV shows that are so different that I'm just not gonna be able to deliver anything for them. But you are exercising new muscles and you are coming in saying, well, look, these, these actors know the characters better than I do. And, you know, uh, the showrunner knows the show better than I do. And, you know, the DP knows the world better than I do. But there might be a benefit to be that, to being that outsider that comes in and says, well, maybe there's something, you know, that I can bring here that sort of changes this up a little bit or makes it a little bit more fresh in some ways. And how do I do that while still honoring, you know, the personality and the nature of the show? Um, yeah. and, and so you're, you're going in to fit in and stand out <laughs> all at the same time. And it is a very delicate, it's a delicate balance. But I think, you know, particularly with something like, <coughs> excuse me, third series of Handmaid's Tale. Um, you know, they're looking for new voices in a fresh way, you know, new mm -hmm. fresh ways to bring, bring, bring light to it. <coughs> Gonna have a drink um, while I pray for you have a yeah, don't worry. I'm going to, uh, uh, we're, we're running out of time. So I just want to make sure we talk about, because I've luckily seen six episodes of Mrs. <coughs> America which yes. you've, you've, you've worked on as well. So just quickly before, whilst you have a drink and have a, we'll, we'll have a look at a quick end. Um, yeah, we've got a little see. trailer. Perfect timing. <laughs> see, Perfect. we planned it. Uh, we're going to take a quick look at Mrs. America and then we'll come back and talk about it. And we'll also get to your questions in just a second. Perfect. Revolutions are messy. I am not against women. I am not against women working outside the home. But what I am against is the women's liberation movement. Our movement is about fighting the oppression of all women. We want the right to be a mother, the right to be a wife. So now we're not going to have people we disagree with participate? This fight is not about equality. It's about power. 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 When did you get so mean? We don't get to decide how the battle lines are drawn. Did you really think there'd be no casualties? Why would God put this fire in me if he didn't want me to act on it? Mrs. America from BBC Two and iPlayer. It's so good. I feel so privileged that I've been able to see the first six episodes. It's fantastic. So you've done two of the nine i think there is in total yes yes i believe there's nine yes so it's it's this kind of look back at this historical really important historical moment in time and obviously it's 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 based on real events and characters um tell us a little bit about working on this and what it was like and what you were able to bring to it i guess as well yeah well so um i was initially contacted by my agents by um, the, the two, two of the producers, Coco Francini and Stacey Scher, who are two brilliant women, two brilliant producers. And um, they sent me the first um, two scripts, I think it was. And I, I didn't know anything about Phyllis Schlafly, um, who is the character that Kate Blanchett plays. And, um, but I was intrigued. I was intrigued after the first episode and I thought, where is this going? And the only thing I really knew about it, apart from the fact that it was about the 1970s movement to, to, to have the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA ratified, 
um, was that, that they were going to, they were wanting to focus each episode around a different woman in the movement. And for those of you that don't know, Billy Schlafly, if you, if you like, is part of the anti-movement, I guess. A woman who was campaigning not to have the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. And so, um, you know, the, Gloria Steinem was going to figure in it. And uh, I, I found out, you know, when I sat down and spoke with Coco and, uh, and Stacey, the producers, that there was going to be this whole episode on Shirley Chisholm, who, uh, again, for any of you who don't know, was um, the first black person and the first woman to, to run for president in the United States. And, uh, and so at that point, when I met with them, I said, you know, if, if we're talking about this and, and, and we're talking about me possibly coming on board, um, yes, thank you for that, played by the brilliant Uzo Aduba in the series. So good, yeah. um, Then I really, really want to do the Shirley Chisholm episode. So whatever other episode you might be thinking about giving me, please give me that episode, because like, I need to do my thing with that episode. And so, um, and so yes, um, I, I did eventually come on board and, uh, and it was interesting. I mean, this was one series where there was so much, or, or, or yeah, one story, if you like, where there was so much to kind of inhale and understand and, and you're working in a much more swift and fast way than, you, than I would with one of my films. That actually, this, I would say this is one where I wasn't able to, to, to go back the hundred years that I would normally want to. It was just like, let me just consume everything I can for like, <laughs> what, what is going on around my period? Because uh, my two episodes, uh, the first episode is around Shirley Chisholm. The other one is um, Tracy Allman playing Betty um, oh. Fruman. She's and incredible with this. I think oh she's incredible. I, I oh. really think she's incredible. And so, so what I had to do was just, yeah, is consume as much information as I could. And for those of you who will watch the series, you'll see that, um, you know, there's a sort of combination of types of filmmaking and camera work that go on, you know, for the antis there, um, uh, of Phyllis Schlafly's world, it's sort of shot very traditional, and very studio, and in a, in a very particular way very traditional way and um and for the pros you know those who are um trying to get the ra ratified you know it shot really really handheld and um of course shirley chisholm would fall into that pros category but for me there was something about the fact that she and many of us have aunts like this you know i think oftentimes when when we're black we're automatically seen as we're radical and we're you know we sit in the in, in the part of you know the universe that is evolving and that's radical and is always on the edge and is always pushing things forward. But actually, you know, many of our family members are, are very conservative. They're churchgoers. You know, if you look at the way that Shirley dressed, she was, you know, she was Margaret Thatcher before Margaret Thatcher. And um, in terms of like her, her look. And, and so I, for me, it was really important to, in terms of treatment, directing, um, the camera on that was really to, to do a combination of both, to, 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 to reflect her very conservative traditional side, as well as the fact that she was this courageous, brave, brave woman who was groundbreaking in that handheld side. And so I guess that's really how I, I brought my stamp to it, apart from the fact that I just love, um, you know, delivering actors that, you know, a, a good platform to be able to show what they do. And, and, and to, be, to be able, you know, particularly with, with, with Uzo's story, but Tracy Ullman's story as well, and to be able to, 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 to guide that and refine that. And, you know, working with Kate and working with Sarah Paulson and all of those, you know, really wonderful actors um, was, just a, was just really, really a joy. Um, 
and I guess what you learn from something like this or and, and even Handmaid's Tale as well when you've been given 45 days to shoot your movie or however long it is and you know suddenly you know you, you, you know you're used to shooting how many pages a day and suddenly you've got to shoot four times as many is that is how capable you are how you can somehow still find a way to get the depth of of character and story and emotion and content and beauty um uh shout out to pepe my dp on uh, mrs america as well um in in so much less of the time than you ever believed you could because you know film to a certain extent is luxury um so i learned you know that's why i say you're constantly learning and you're constantly discovering aspects of yourself you know as you're as, as you're going through this stuff so it is different but it's equally important and i love what i can bring from film to tv mm -hmm. and what i can take back from tv you know back into my films well listen we're going to get on to some questions because i've yeah. been I've, I've been selfishly having you all to myself but uh, we've got so many questions here um oh this is a nice from from kalechi who says what would you like to direct that seems almost an impossibility right now because it's seems untouchable Kalechi, hello um i would like to direct um a superhero movie a comic book character yes. movie with uh with uh, a black female comic book character at its center i think it seems impossible because you know we've definitely seen black men do it um with black panther and we've seen white women do it so far with um wonder woman and i use those two examples because they they are also minority or, or not minority groups because it's women we're 52 percent but they are you know to a certain extent quite excluded groups but we haven't seen a black female do it yet the industry hasn't yeah. yet trusted a black woman to do a comic book character i think in terms of film yeah. not tv um who, you know one who has an or origin story that goes back, way back to one of the um you know traditional and classic comics and so i would love to do that i i i am waiting for the opportunity to do that and bring what i do with relationships and dynamics on screen um bring that to the world of of, of, of a comic book hero i when i watched black panther as well i was i was craving a uh a spin-off of Letitia's character Absolutely. because I thought she was just, I mean, her performance was extraordinary and what she brought to that. And I was like praying that they have a spin-off of that because I think she's she, a beautiful soul, a beautiful, yeah. beautiful soul. And, and she deserves every success that she has. And yes, absolutely. She deserves her own movie. She's incredible. Yeah. And um, Tamisha says, as a filmmaker, what is your approach to delegation? What makes for a fruitful collaboration? That's a great question. Uh, that is such a great question. Well, so I'm a Virgo. Um, I'm a micromanager. And, um, and so what I, how I control that and how I think I use it to its best effect is that I am micromanaging at the point where I am choosing my heads of department. So I put every, every effort, every neurosis I have into picking the right head of department for that particular movie. And once I found that person, I do not micromanage them. I have to trust in my choice and I let them do what they do. And part of that is by ensuring also that my vision is really clear and making sure that I find the head of department that's on the same page as me. So what I do is I create a document usually, it's a mood board, 
Um, it's quite a detailed mood board and it is the talking document that I use when I'm interviewing production designers and costume designers and the DP. And, you know, when you have something like that, it, you know, you very quickly learn those people who are on the same page as you and those people who are not. And um, once I establish that, I, um, I, I, I back off because, you know, that side of the work is done. Now, of course, we are collaborating all the time, you know, you know, right down to the wallpaper, um, you know, that you might see in the background of, you know, Rosamund Pike's um, bed and breakfast <laughs> that she's staying in, you know, once her dad kicks her out of the house for dating a, a black guy. But, but I, you know, I trust Simon Bowles, who um, was the, the production designer both on Bell and in United Kingdom to do his work. I trust Arwell Jones, who was the production designer on Where Hands Touch, to do, to, to do um, his job. And, and, you know, we collaborate in a respectful way, but I'm not micromanaging. So I think it's, you know, do your due diligence when you're bringing those people on board. You will regret it if you don't, mm -hmm. but then respect their craft in the way that you hope that they will respect yours, I think. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, I think it's an important question to ask because I know around um, uh, where hands touch you, there was you were literally there a couple of weeks before you had there was financing issues, wasn't there? And Stephanie wants to know, <laughs> good eye roll. What have been your challenges with financing your films? What advice could you offer for those of us starting our first feature in regards to financing? Well, I would say this, you know, um, remain tenacious and remain determined and understand that you are not alone in the difficulties of financing and you know do, do not look there are movies that collapse there's no two ways about that there are movies that collapse very very close to what we call first day of principal photography um but 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 to lose a financier is also not the you know the strangest thing in the world and it happens and you know you you you've got to put your big girl or your big boy pants on and 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 you know and and and, and cope with it and hopefully uh, you should have picked or teamed up with a very very good producer and a very very good producer doesn't always necessarily mean the most experienced but someone who is as in love with the project as you are because any project that you get involved with is often going to be in your life for years and so you don't want somebody who at the first hurdle is going to crack yeah. you don't want somebody who's going to kind of leave you high and dry but who is as passionate about the project at least as you are and we'll keep fighting with you and I, and I would say that it's a numbers game and I say that about all areas of the industry actually and the more that you know the longer you hang in there the, the bigger your chances of success uh, you just got to keep on knocking on doors don't stalk and don't waste time at the same time where you're not wanted because yeah. all that time and energy you spend like trying to bang that door back open that's already slammed in your face you could be spending on the right person and quite often you know it only it only takes meeting one more person you know that what that right one more person to be the difference between you making your film and not making your film so use your savvy and your and your spidey instinct to know when it's just time to chip and move on you know yeah um, I love that this one's an anonymous attendee, but they say, what can actors do to stand out in the room? I think that, you know, one of the things that I've, I've often said that for me was, is the difference between a good actor and a great actor, and this was why I was neither, <laughs> is, um, is the, di the difference between um, being able to give a, a, a good performance to me is one way, you, you, you know, you're quite convincing, but you haven't quite let go of yourself. 
And I think um, both actors who are able to cross over and absolutely lose themselves in a role, make the difference, or in a read, if you're in an audition, um, you know, make the difference between, you know, what will be a good performance and a great performance. I would say in the last few years, self-tapes have become, you know, really incredible. George Mackay for Where Hands Touch was, was cast on a self-tape. Wow. And I actually had, um, I actually thought I had found my, my lead actor um, and uh, was told by Toby Well, who was the casting director on that film, no, 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 wait, 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 George Mackay sent a tape in, didn't know who he was at that point, you know, have a look at it, had a look at it. And for me, what he did um, in that, A, he directed himself, um, brilliantly, he bought. Uh, he found himself somebody who would not just read with him, but would do the blocking of the, you know, work through the blocking of the scene with him. So they actually blocked the scene together and did it. And you know, it wasn't as I would block it, but it was good. And uh, and he lost himself in that role. He lost himself in that reading. And and I never saw any George Mackay. I just saw a German boy um, who was caught up in the nasty world of of Nazi Germany at the time. And I, I think that that's the difference. Again, I would say, you know, when you come in to an audition, don't be too pushy, because that can scare, that can be scary. Well, certainly for me as a director, I find that really scary. Um, but the key thing is, you know, to be as professional as you can, and then once you start your read, just lose yourself. And you know, oftentimes when a director then gives you direction after you've done your read the first time, or maybe they ask you for a call back and to submit a tape again, and they're giving you direction, take the direction. Because one of the things we're trying to see is whether you can actually take direction as opposed to just ignore it yeah, <laughs> and do yeah, the yeah. same thing all over again. So, so show how well you're able to kind of interpret what the director is asking you and, uh, and deliver that. And I would say those are key things. Uh, Bernard asked, there's so many questions, I'm trying to kind of scan through them so I can pull some out, but um, I can what's see the them best... all popping up. <laughs> What's the best advice for preparing a successful pitch? Whoa, the best advice for preparing a successful pitch, I think, is to is really to absorb yourself in the world, is to have done your research before. Um, and to, if you can, if you're, my pitches always are visual pitches as well. So that, that, that mood board is, is, is always relevant. And um, if you, if you spend time, and I spend weeks on my mood boards, if I'm able to, um, searching, you know, doing my research on the, on the right kind of photographs and the right kind of imagery that I want in there, I do use a palette. And um, I think that makes a difference to the aesthetic and the beauty of the work that you're doing. So I'm not, I haven't, unless you really, you want it for a reason, I, I'm thinking about how harmonious or not harmonious the images that I'm, I'm, I'm smashing together are, depending on what you're looking for. And I would say, you know, have a really, really great mood board. Um, make sure you've done your research, you know, whether they're fictitious characters or whether they're real characters, but on the world that they're in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you know, you can never research enough, you know, by the time you've got to sit there and you've got to do your pitch, you always feel not that ready, but then you've just got to go in there and you've got to be confident. And you can freak out when you get out of the pitch, because I do, like I usually have to get a shower if I'm really honest, because I get so hot and stressed during it. But you know, you can freak out afterwards, but at the time, you know, treat them as people. 
um, that you know and it's that's really hard I know when you know there are thousands of other people pitching for the job I'm often pitching when I'm uh, abroad and COVID and lockdown has changed all that now a lot you know we're doing pitches you know on screen but oftentimes I'm the one who's doing it on screen and you've got a lot of male directors who live in Hollywood and are just going in in person and they've got their big like mood boards like this um the other thing I should mention about a successful pitch is making sure that you you know what we're doing nowadays is also cutting scissor reels so we're you know we're doing moving mood boards and that's also really brilliant even better if not way to to do it so those guys are going in and they you know they're showing it in person and they're talking it through and I'm having to do it with a screen between us but you've got to deliver it with confidence, I think. Um, you've got to be the expert on the uh, on 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 what you're delivering, even though if you, once you get the job, you're going to be collaborating with with the producers and the and, and, and the showrunner or the or, yeah. or 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 the producers themselves that you're working with. It it, it will be some kind of collaboration. But you, it's important to show you've got vision. Um, but we've probably got time for a couple more. Peter says, uh, what's your advice for a first or second time producer who wants an amazing director like yourself to direct their film? I guess people pitching to you then. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a hard one. Um, I think you, you, you obviously, you need to come at it with the strongest script you've got in terms of the strongest version of the script you've got. Don't, don't, don't submit that script too early before it's gone through a process where, where the characters are really jumping out from the page. And my advice, often what happens to me is I get a first or second time director who comes to me and uh, they write in all this speaky spoky language about how wonderful their project is and how, and I think that's something that you sort of got to let the reader decide for themselves rather than telling, but they also come often saying, we've got this person attached. Um, uh, and we've got this movie star or this person has shown interest. And actually, you know, I think any director of a movie in particular worth their, their, their salt um, doesn't want you to tell them who is the right person for, for the role. They want to be able to cast. And yes, of course, it's always a collab, oh, often a collaborative thing with the producer. Um, but that's exactly at the minimum what it should be. It should not be you telling a director how much you're sure they would want to work with this or that actor because even if they're the most famous actor in the world um directors have all sorts of reasons why they want why they you know like a particular actor's work or not and or why they think they would be right for that role so don't think that dumping an actor or attaching an actor early um, and, and, and forcing that actor on somebody that you might want to offer it to is going to be necessarily a positive way forward. For me, it's, it's quite off-putting, so. Um, this is probably going to be our last question, and it kind of feels like a, a really um, relevant and important one, kind of from what we were talking about earlier, about that figure that you that you were talking about in 2014. And um, Terlin, thank you for your question. It says, Steve McQueen recently discussed the frustration of not seeing more talented black crew members. He says the infrastructure needs to change. He says it's not just about black people working on black films, it's about black people working in film and television, period. Um, and so um, Terlin just wanted your thoughts on, on that. And if, if that's something, I guess, in the position that you're in now that you can make decisions to change on your productions as well and make sure that that's something that's that's been addressed yeah and i mean look, look it's it's worth saying um oftentimes with key heads of crew you know your executive producers do also have approval over who who you you, you take on um and that 
you know, occasionally can make things hard as well. I want to say that, you know, the, the next film that I'm scheduled to make is called Billion Dollar Spy, and it's set in Cold War Russia. And, um, uh, you know, we've got two wonderful casts attached to it um, that hopefully one day we'll be able to make a big, beautiful announcement about. But, you know, it is about two white men. And, um, and it's very important that I get to... to, to um, direct movies that are about people that are like me seemingly on the surface and that are, that are about people who are not like me seemingly on the surface. But the, what made that happen was uh, the producers and the production company who, companies who, when I pitched, were able to look past, you know, structures that have been created, that have set up obstacles, you know, in the first place and just said, for us, this is the best person to direct this. And, uh, and those people do exist in the industry and we need more of them. Um, they are, you know, they are, it's important that they're not just the future, that they are the now. And, you know, in addition to that, I want to say that, you know, when I won my BAFTA, it, it was 10 years before I won, before I made another film. And there were, there are those um, directors who are not black and who are not female who won the, the same BAFTA which is for a debut um, director, producer or writer um, who went on and, and in the time that it took me to make one more film made so many more films than I did and what then happens is you get into a situation where naturally uh, industries say well we need experienced people we need experienced people well of course people are going to be more experienced if they have more opportunity and you have less and so, you know, we're in that catch-22 situation where the, the industry is set up, it's structured to, to, to limit um, um, many of us who look like me um, from getting the experience we need whilst giving so much opportunity to people who are no more talented, frankly, than we yeah. are, but, but, but who, who are more likely to be able to get uh, and make awards worthy movies, you know, work with bigger actors, bigger names, simply because they, they, they have been able to hone their skills. Mm -hmm. And so of course, I mean, you're preaching to the church here. I mean, we, we've got to, we've got to keep um, pushing hard and, and changing. And one of the ways in which I do it, although it does frustrate me, is that, you know, for, for each film that I'm in control of, um, I ensure that I have at least one emerging female filmmaker um, shadowing me on, on that film. On my last film, as most people know, I had four because I, it was just, you know, it was impossible to, to whittle it down to just one or two. And my hope is that, and the reason why it frustrates me is because we shouldn't just be at entry level. You know, many of us, you know, despite the obstacles, and this is why I guess they call us magic, because despite the obstacles, we've still managed to deliver, you know, quality work, great, great work. And, um, and yet constantly we're sort of referred to in the realms of new and beginners. And, um, and, so, and so I don't only want to be facilitating opportunity for people at entry level, but I, but I also, whilst I'm trying to ensure that we, you know, as hard as I can, that we have greater crew um, um, in terms of diversity, um, that, that there are that next generation also has the opportunity of being able to say, well, I have worked on a, a, a decent sized movie set before. You know, I was able to get um, work experience with Amma or to, to shadow Amma. And I hope that 
I pray that that makes a difference on CVs when they then go in and they, uh, they speak to other people about working on other productions or bigger productions or maybe even getting their own movies financed at the end of the day. So I think it's a, it's, um, it's a multi-pronged attack um, that we need. Um, and everybody knows that the time that we're in right now, none of us are kind of unaware of the time that we're in now. I think it's up to all of us as a society to make this moment meaningful yeah. um, and to make this moment count. And um, that's what I'm trying to do. And I really look forward to, to making that next film so that I can, you know, I can do my best in terms of crew, but I can also do my best in terms of emerging filmmakers who might want to shadow me. Do you have any idea when you might be, is there a sniff of when, if, if and when production might start? I mean... Oh my God, COVID, please give us a chance <laughs> to get back out there and start filming. Yeah. I mean, that's the key thing. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I think it would have been this year if it wasn't for COVID. Um, the movie, the, you know, the aesthetic I want is it needs to be covered in snow. I want it to be as much real snow as possible and not CGI <laughs> snow. So that does restrict us time of year. But at the end of the day, and, and you know, there's nothing worse than trying to make something look like winter and the trees are Green, and, yeah. you know, um, but I think, yeah, I, I think it will be within the next um, twelve months. That's the that's the most important thing. So, yeah. Thanks everybody for all your questions and for being here with us this afternoon. And Amma, thank you so 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 much for joining us this afternoon and giving oh. up your time and for all your wonderful work and keep doing what you're doing. And um, you're an absolute thank inspiration. You. Thank, thank you so, you so much. much lovely a pleasure. Take bye care. Bye. Thank bye. You. bye. Thanks, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us and remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.